And someone said to me, Jason, you sound like Thomas Sowell. And I said, Thomas who? I wanted to introduce Sowell's writing uh, and, and thinking to uh, a new generation. I was uh, annoyed, uh, almost angry, that when people thought of leading Black intellectuals in particular, you heard names like uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates and Ibram Kendi and Henry Louis Gates and Orlando Patterson and Cornell West, but not Thomas Sowell. And I thought that um, you know, Tom had, had written circles around those individuals. He had anticipated uh, many of their arguments decades ago and refuted those arguments decades ago. People shouldn't have to change the channel to hear a different opinion. Uh, but that's where we are today. The problem is not watching Fox News or watching CNN. It's only watching Fox News or only watching CNN. Sol says that he became an economist because he wanted to understand the world around him. And once he got some understanding of that, he wanted to share it with others. Sol wanted to teach. He's always wanted to teach. The social justice crowd begins with a very faulty assumption about how the world works. And that assumption is that the inequality we see today, whether it's income inequality or racial inequality or so forth, is aberrant, that it is not normal. Sol says, no, you have it exactly backwards. Disparate outcomes are the norm. And um, But he has certainly paid, paid a price. They will they will never forgive him for being right. Welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. I'm your host, Alan Woolen. The voice you just heard belongs to Jason Riley, Manhattan Institute fellow, Wall Street Journal opinion journalist, and the author of the only biography of Thomas Sowell, appropriately named Maverick. There's a reason Maverick is the only biography of Sowell. Everyone else who thought of writing a biography about him read Maverick first and decided there was no way to do better, so they gave up before they even started. I'm making that up, of course. I have no idea if anyone else ever planned to write a biography of Thomas Sowell. But you can tell I'm a big fan of Jason Riley's book. If you want to dig deeper into the life and times of Thomas Sowell, there are three books I recommend. The first is Sowell's own autobiography called A Personal Odyssey, which was published in the year 2000. The second is a collection of his letters which he wrote to others over many decades called A Man of Letters, which was published in 2007. When I read A Man of Letters, I wondered to myself that only someone who thinks their life is going to really matter would save copies of hundreds of letters they wrote to other people over the years. And remember, those were the days before email and easy access to Xerox machines. Sowell must have been using carbon paper when he wrote most of his letters. I, for one, have never saved 
I, for one, have never saved a single letter I ever wrote to anyone. I guess that tells you everything we need to know about my place in history. Well, at least there's this podcast to serve as my time capsule. The third book to read to get a fuller understanding of Sowell is, of course, Maverick. And if you only have time to read one of the three books mentioned, Maverick is the one I recommend for two reasons. The first reason is that Jason Riley read A Personal Odyssey and A Man of Letters for you, and he culls some of the most noteworthy passages from those books into his biography. The second reason is that Maverick is a great book, a great story, and it successfully traces Sowell's intellectual development from childhood to maturity to the present day. Whether you read Maverick today, in five years, in 10 years, or in 50 years, it will remain a powerful story of the intellectual development of one of the greatest thinkers of the modern age. I can't help but congratulate Jason Riley for writing and Basic Books for publishing what is sure to remain a perennial bestseller for many years to come. Before I invite Jason onto the podcast to talk about Maverick, I'd like to give you a brief overview of the book as a way to whet your appetite for reading it. Maverick is split up into nine chapters, and I'd like to offer you a small morsel from each chapter, just one quote from that chapter, which stood out for me personally. As regular listeners of this podcast will know, music is a key creative element of my podcasting, and it helps to unleash a part of my brain which is not otherwise easily unleashed. So I had an idea for this episode. Thomas Sowell was born in 1930. As of today, he's 93 years old. What if I were to play the number one song from each decade, starting with the year he was born? That's nine songs. And coincidentally, Maverick has nine chapters. Voila, we have a match. What I find most interesting about the music I picked for this episode is how much it has changed over the decades. I'm no musicologist, but even my neophyte ear can hear a huge difference in almost everything about it. The instruments, the cadence, the beats, the voices, and especially the lyrics. Fashions change. Everyone knows that. But there's an interesting comparison to be made between the changing fashions of clothing and music and the changing fashions of social and political crusades, which evolve over the years. Social Justice Fallacies is the title of Sowell's newest book. And we learn from Sowell's many other books that the quest for so-called social justice has a long and storied history. It's nothing new. When you read Maverick, you realize that Sowell and America have been grappling with the subject of social justice for well over half a century. You know that old definition of insanity as doing the same things over and over and expecting a different result? Well, there's a form of societal insanity which could be described as arguing the same things with the same people over and over and expecting the other side to change their minds. I refuse to do that in my personal life, but for some reason, we seem to be doing that as a society, and we don't even realize we're doing it. The particular crusades of the day change, but the crusading spirit never does. Here are just a few of the crusades I have personally witnessed in my short life. 
banning the pesticide DDT, school busing, car safety, sex education, the anti-drug crusade, the recycling movement, the crusade against capital punishment, homelessness crusades, affordable housing crusade, the anti-nuclear movement, radon gas dangers, the ozone layer, the crusade against urban sprawl, the crusade for a living wage, crusade to end sweatshop labor in the third world, crusades against urban blight, the abortion crusade, the crusade to clamp down on payday loans, the overpopulation crusade, affordable medical care through the government crusade, environmentalism, global warming, the crusade against police brutality, multiculturalism, diversity crusade, the open borders crusade, and finally, the latest crusade, the transsexual crusade. As Thomas Sowell said, Such are the ways of politics, where the crusade of the hour often blocks out everything else, at least until another crusade comes along and takes over the same monopoly of our minds. One of my main goals in trying to get more and more people to read Sowell is to get them to understand that whatever cause they feel so strongly about is just another manifestation of the human urge to find a crusade we can attach ourselves to because it helps us to define ourselves and to look good in our own eyes. God forbid we should live a quiet life, get married, raise a family, work and enjoy the day-to-day. That would be too easy. Instead, we insist on fixing the world while mostly ignoring all those supposedly mundane pursuits. So let's begin. Ladies and gentlemen, Maverick, a biography of Thomas Sowell by Jason Riley. Happy days are here again, the skies above are clear again. Let us sing a song of cheer again. Happy days are here again. In 1930, the year Sowell was born, the number one song was Happy Days Are Here Again. This song was written a few months before the Great Depression, but was released after the crash ironically, and it became FDR's campaign slogan two years later. This was the musical mood in America, the year Sowell was born in rural North Carolina, in a house with no electricity or running hot water. Sowell's father died a few months before he was born, and his mother died a few years later, while giving birth to his younger brother. Sowell became orphaned at an early age. Happy Days Are Here Again must have been booming on endless repeat from radios all across North Carolina that year. The only reason I know this song is because it was revived and made famous again by Barbara Streisand in the 1960s. Chapter 1 is called Chicago Schooled because it jumps ahead in Sowell's life to the period in his training where he studied economics at the University of Chicago under Milton Friedman, George Stigler, and Friedrich von Hayek. This chapter lays out the many economic debates that have raged over the decades which Sowell became embroiled in. It tells the story of how Sowell became a Marxist and remained one all through his educational career. One passage from this chapter which stood out to me was about what finally converted Sowell away from Marxism. Jason Riley wrote this. According to Sowell, he didn't abandon socialism because he was bamboozled by his Chicago professors. Rather, 
What ultimately began his drift to the political right was a summer job at the U.S. Department of Labor in Washington in the summer of 1960. The job paid more than I had ever made before, enabling me to enjoy a few amenities of life. Inadvertently, it also played a role as a turning point in my ideological orientation. After a year at the University of Chicago, including a course from Milton Friedman, I remained as much of a Marxist as I had been before arriving. However, the experience of seeing government at work from the inside and at a professional level started me to rethinking the whole notion of government as a potentially benevolent force in the economy and society. From there on, as I learned more and more from both experience and research, my adherence to the visions and doctrines of the left began to erode rapidly with the passage of time. The most popular song of 1940 was I'll Never Smile Again by Tommy Dorsey and Frank Sinatra. War was raging in Europe, but the Japanese had not yet attacked the U.S. at Pearl Harbor, so America was not yet at war. Chapter 2 is called A Man Alone, because it describes Sowell as someone who belonged to no school of thought, no political party, and no organized group. He was a man alone, who thought for himself and developed his own opinions. Jason Riley wrote this. In 1960, after the chairman of the economics department at Howard University approached him about a teaching job, Sowell wrote to a friend that the man seemed genuinely unable to reconcile my going to the more conservative University of Chicago with my coming from liberal Harvard. I don't think it really occurred to him that I have a mind of my own and did not consider myself a product of either institution. What's striking about the encounter is that it demonstrates just how long people have been questioning Sowell's motives and challenging his ability to think for himself. Throughout his career, he would be accused by detractors of consciously echoing the views of others or adopting certain positions merely to curry favor or serve the interests of whites in power. But his letters provide compelling evidence of an autonomy that long predates his life as a public intellectual. And this is especially true with regard to his views on racial matters. The number one song of 1950 was called Goodnight Irene and was performed by a quartet called The Weavers. What's interesting about this song is that it was written by a black folk singer named Huddy Ledbetter 17 years earlier and didn't become famous until after his death. Chapter 3 
tells the story of the part of Sowell's career spent as a teacher during the 1960s and his involvement in the racial justice movements which were sweeping the country at that time. The chapter lays out how affirmative action became embedded in American higher education. The chapter is also about Sowell's growing disillusionment with academia and why he ultimately gave up on being a professor. Here's one passage which gives you a flavor for what Sowell experienced in academia. Sowell's very first academic post was at Douglas College, a women's college at Rutgers University in New Jersey, where he was hired in 1962 to teach economics. He liked the small campus feel and had positive interactions with the students. I decided that this is how I wanted to spend my life, but the sentiment was fleeting. Due to constant run-ins with colleagues over his teaching style and tough grading, he tendered his resignation after only a year, a pattern that would repeat itself at other schools. After accepting a post at Howard University in 1963, he became dismayed by, among other things, the lax standards and seeming indifference among administrators to the blatant, organized, and pervasive cheating on exams. The common run of students at Howard are almost unbelievably lazy, dishonest, rude, and irresponsible, he wrote to a friend at the time. But even more troubling was the school's indulgence of this behavior. All too frequently, the school panders to their worst habits by giving deadline extensions, makeup exams, incompletes, etc., to the point where these things are regarded almost as constitutional rights. The number one song from 1960 was an instrumental called Theme from a Summer Place by Percy Faith. It's quite unusual for an instrumental with no singing to achieve number one status, and this song accomplished that feat. Chapter four is called Sowell's Reconsiderations and is about Sowell's go-it-alone attitude and about how he, from a young age, always marched to the beat of his own drummer. Jason Riley said this. A middle school teacher tried to discourage young Tommy from applying to one of New York City's most selective high schools because she didn't think he'd score well enough on the entrance exam. He ignored her advice and proceeded to score not only well enough to be admitted to the school, but high enough to be placed in honors classes. In the ninth grade, another teacher told him she was planning to submit an essay he'd written to a citywide contest. She wanted to make some changes. I don't recall what. But she said that if she couldn't make them, then she couldn't send it in. I said, then don't send it in. We don't know if the teachers took it personally, but we do know that Seoul would later think nothing of treating professors at Ivy League institutions and editors at major newspapers with the same high-handed indifference, for better or worse. I still remember some officious coffee editor at the New York Times saying that if I didn't accept some change in something I'd written, then it would be an inferior piece, he told me. I said, no, it won't. Just put it in an envelope and send it back to me. He once returned a book advance after the publisher insisted on changing dates in the manuscript to read A.D. 800 instead of 800 A.D. They said the correct form is A.D. 800, and I pointed out that various well-known university presses did it the other way. And then I said, you know, this is a very big book, and if we're going to go through it with this sort of Mickey Mouse stuff, it's not worth it. 
They parted ways, and he took the manuscript to another publisher who paid him an even larger advance and had no problem with how the dates were written. Thinking back on those episodes, he wrote, To say that my relationship with editors has not always been a happy one would be to completely understate the situation. To me, the fact that I have never killed an editor is proof that the death penalty deters. The number one song of 1970 was Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel. This was the first song on today's podcast, which was released during my lifetime. And boy, do I remember this song. The vocals by Art Garfunkel are unforgettable. Coincidentally, I share an alma mater with both Simon and Garfunkel. We all went to the same high school in Forest Hills, Queens. In fact, my mother was there at the same time as they were. Who knows? They might even remember her. Maybe one of them even had a crush on her. You never know. Chapter 5 is called Sowell's Knowledge and gives a good overview of many of Sowell's most important books and puts them in a larger context. Riley makes the case in this chapter that Sowell's 1980 book, Knowledge and Decisions, might just be Sowell's most important work, which I wholeheartedly agree with. Riley wrote this. The book was also well-received by fellow economists in the top echelons of the profession. James Buchanan, a future Nobel laureate, said that it invites comparison with Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, and that Sowell seems fully at ease with issues of current economic policy, with economic history, with legal reasoning, with political and constitutional process, and with the history of ideas. He seems to be able to call on a veritable mine of wisdom and experience as he enlightens the discussion of the topics that he explores in depth. Buchanan was no less unreserved in his private correspondence with Sowell. You have written a great book, and I do not recall ever having said that to anyone, he wrote to him in a letter. It should be required reading for every social scientist, philosopher, intellectual, and politician. I wish I had written it. Lady, I'm your knight in shining armor, and I love you. You have made me what I am, and I am yours. My love. The number one song of 1980 was Lady by Kenny Rogers. This song was actually written by Lionel Richie, who wrote the song and offered it to the Commodores, but they turned it down. So he offered it to Kenny Rogers instead. This might just be the greatest love song ever written. Chapter 6 is called Sowell's Visions and tells the story behind Sowell's informal trilogy of books. A Conflict of Visions, published in 1987. A Vision of the Anointed, published in 1995, and The Quest for Cosmic Justice, from 1999. I've always felt that these three books should be offered in a box set. They just go together, even though they were written many years apart, with many other books coming between them. 
Jason Riley says this about the trilogy. Each book in Soul's informal trilogy on the history of ideas can stand alone, but what they represent collectively is an extensive discourse on methods of thinking about the nature of man. They are his stab at explaining why things are the way they are and why our discussions of public policy have veered in certain directions for the past 200 years. What is more, these works are essential guides to where Soul is coming from. Whether the topic is crime control, education policy, international affairs, racial preferences, antitrust law, or some other contemporary subject. They provide the deepest understanding of his approach to processing the world around him. The number one song from 1990 was Hold On by Wilson Phillips. I'm not a big fan of this song, but it does fairly represent the musical ethos of that time period. The lyrics were supposedly inspired by the one-day-at-a-time philosophy of Alcoholics Anonymous, which Phillips was a member of because of her drug addiction. Chapter 7 is called Civil Rights and Wrongs, and tells the story of Sowell's involvement in the civil rights movements of the 60s and 70s. And the chapter centers around why he wrote his 1984 classic, Civil Rights, Rhetoric or Reality. Riley wrote this. Celebrated writers such as Ta-Nehisi Coates have called for slavery reparations to address inequality. Black Lives Matter activists target policing and Confederate statuary. The New York Times' 1619 Project rewrites U.S. history in a manner that puts the subjugation of blacks at the center of the nation's founding. For many, discrimination and racism are not partial truths but whole truths, not just things to oppose but explanations to cling to, like a security blanket, Sowell concluded. The rhetoric continues to trump reality. Civil rights, rhetoric or reality, was a painful book to write, he said in a personal letter after the book's publication. But other Americans have done more painful things than that, or none of us would be here living in freedom today. My dues were small. He dedicated the book to E. Franklin Frazier, who put truth above popularity. I can feel the magic floating in the air. Being with you gets me that way I watch the sunlight dance across your face And I've never been this swept away The number one song from the year 2000 was Breathe by Faith Hill. One critic said of this country music style ballad that it was destined for the prom night halls and the wedding receptions of tomorrow. Maybe so, but it was definitely not on the playlist at my 2010 wedding. Chapter 8 is called Culture Matters and tells the story of how Sowell traveled around the world in search of a deeper understanding of why various cultural groups in America are so different. This period in Sowell's intellectual journey culminated with the publication of another trilogy of books, Race and Culture, 1995, 
Migrations and Cultures, 1996, and Conquests and Cultures, 1998. Riley said this, Soul circumnavigated the world twice in the 1980s to gather data from a variety of societies he wished to compare. Stops included England, Israel, Greece, India, Hong Kong, Singapore, Australia, and Fiji. This field research would inform not just the trilogy, but also Soul's other international perspectives and histories for the balance of his career. Riley continues. In writing the trilogy, Soul drew on vast amounts of research and international data to debunk the assumption that differences in the performance of racial and ethnic groups stem entirely, or even predominantly, from surrounding social structures. He was not trying to say that culture explains everything or that cultures are permanent, but he did reject the priori dogma that all cultures are equal. Such relativism may be politically correct, he argued, but it's not supported by the evidence, and these books provide example after example of not only key cultural differences, but how those differences have shaped the course of history, for better or worse. Chapter 8 also dives into the subject of affirmative action and how Sowell's exploration of various cultures around the world informed his understanding of affirmative action back home. Riley said this, He has written about the origins of racial preferences, their impact on hiring decisions, and their role in college admissions. He has questioned their very necessity, and argued that in practice they can undermine self-development and serve to diminish the accomplishments of successful blacks. He's mulled the legality of racial double standards, and the wisdom of creating a racial spoils system in an increasingly pluralistic society. He's written about how racial preferences have affected not only blacks and Hispanics, but also Asians and women. He's noted how they started as efforts to ensure equal opportunity without regard to race, but evolved into numerical goals and quotas, how they were supposed to be temporary, but became open-ended, and how they have been sold as efforts to help the poor, but in practice have helped those who were already better off to begin with. He has shown how the justification for preferences inevitably changes over time and critiqued the rationale for using them as a means of historical redress. And, of course, Sowell has shown how none of this is unique to affirmative action policies in the United States, but in fact has been the pattern in country after country all over the world. Wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy. Hey, what up, girl? Grab my glasses, I'm out the door. I'm gonna hit this city. Let's Before go. I leave, brush my teeth with a bottle of Jack. Cause when I leave for the night, I ain't coming back. I'm talking pedicure on our toes, toes. Trying on all our clothes, clothes. Our ninth and final song today is the 2010 number one hit, TikTok by Kesha. This song came six years before the now-dominant social media app by the same name was launched. And who knows, maybe the name for the app was inspired by Kesha's song. The song reflects the party-till-you-drop ethos of American pop culture. Tick-tock on the clock, but the party don't stop. Chapter 9 is called Soul Man and is the final chapter of Maverick and it explores the dichotomy between black elites and the black masses, and Sowell's role in revealing this divide. It tells the story of Sowell's controversial 1981 column in the Washington Post called Blacker Than Thou, in which Sowell described the internal social history of black Americans, including a discussion of the discrimination faced by darker-skinned blacks by lighter-skinned blacks. 
Jason Riley said this about the blacker-than-thou columns. In his memoir, Sowell said that these two columns caused the biggest uproar of anything he'd ever written, before or since, and he suspected that it was not so much because of what he had said, but because of where it had appeared, in a newspaper read by people who were well aware of internal color discrimination. There was no way to deny it, especially not in Washington, where so many blacks knew about such things from their own personal experience, he wrote. Denial being impossible, their anger at me for telling this dirty little secret took the form of venomous attacks which took up a whole page of the Washington Post, and I was also denounced for these articles in other publications that were likewise unable to deny the truth of what I had said. Riley ends Chapter 9 with the question of whether Sowell receives the recognition he deserves. Riley writes this. When I asked Gerald Early, a professor of African-American studies at Washington University in St. Louis, who has followed Sowell's career, why Sowell hadn't received the same recognition as less accomplished scholars, he said it was because the liberal left dominate intellectual circles. They dominate intellectual circles at universities. They dominate intellectual circles at foundations. They dominate intellectual circles insofar as intellectual prizes and awards are given. Sowell has not sought the approval of these circles, refusing to pull his punches or compromise his principles, and he has paid the price. Still, Early believes that Sowell will get his due sooner or later. Whether he's given recognition now or it comes after he dies, he will be recognized as a person who has made tremendous contributions and has been an extremely important figure, Early said. First of all, he's been terrifically prolific. Second, his ideas have been read among a lot of people because of the accessibility of his books. And in the end, he may turn out to be proven right insofar as liberal left public policy hasn't worked. So that ends my ridiculously short overview of the nine chapters in Maverick. Keep in mind, I only had time here to pick a few morsels of interest. There are hundreds more to be gleaned from this Sowell biography. I'm a huge fan of this book and I recommend every Sowell student to read Maverick. I've already read it three times, and each time I learn something new from its pages. Thank you for joining me on this musical journey from 1930 to 2010. From this... Happy days are here again, the skies above are clear again. To this... Wake up in the and feeling like P. Diddy. Hey, what up, girl? Grab my glasses, I'm out the door. I'm gonna hit this city Let's before go. I leave. Our music has come quite a long way, and so has Thomas Sowell. Without further ado, let's hear from the author of Maverick himself. Jason Riley, welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have you on the show for three reasons. Number one, you're an avid reader of Thomas Sowell's books. In fact, in the background, I could see a couple right there. I see basic economics. That one's really jumping out at me. You've pretty much read them all, as far as I can tell, from Maverick. So you're one of the few people who has a solid overview of his entire body of work. I'm not quite there yet, but I plan on getting there eventually. Number two, you've written the only authorized biography of Thomas Sowell, and it's a great book, which I've read three times so far. What I love most about your book is that you don't just talk about Sowell's personal life and his career. You focus mostly on his ideas and how they have developed over the course of his career. So it's not just a biography, it's also an intellectual biography. And number three, 
You're an active journalist. You're on the editorial board at the Wall Street Journal. And I've always felt that journalists occupy a unique and special place in our society. So I'm anxious to hear about your experiences there. My first question for you is this. Tell us about your career, how you became a journalist, why you became a journalist, and how you crossed paths with Thomas Sowell, both professionally and intellectually. Well, first, in, in terms of the uh, the introduction, there are a couple things uh, I want to I want to correct. One is that it's an authorized biography of of, uh, of Soul that I wrote. Technically, no. Tom did agree to sit for some long interviews. He was very generous with his time, but he did not have any say in what was written. He did not see the book before uh, everyone else did. So it was not an authorized uh, biography in that sense, but I did have his cooperation in writing it. And I thought that was important. I, had, in fact, had been trying to, to get him to agree to sit for some long interviews for the book for a number of years. And um, uh, he was rather resistant to doing that. And he said, go ahead and write it. You don't need, you don't need to talk to me directly. Uh, but I thought it was would be a better book if I did. Uh, I kept egging him on, and maybe just in his dotage, he he decided to finally give in and um, and and cooperate in that sense. And some other people, I think, went to bat for me as well. Some of his friends. So they said, "Tom, somebody's going to write this book. It might as well be Jason. Why don't you sit for some interviews?" And so he finally he finally did. Uh, so that that was the first thing I wanted to. And 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 secondly. Um, I did serve on the editorial board of, of the Wall Street Journal for a number of years, but I am no longer on the editorial board of the journal. I write a column for the paper, um, but I'm no longer on staff there. Now I work on staff at the Manhattan Institute for Public Policy, which is a think tank in New York City that uh, focuses on urban issues, and that's where I'm based. But I am still affiliated with the paper just in terms of being a contributing columnist there. So I just wanted to, to correct that for your um, for your audience. I got into journalism uh, in college. I uh, read something one day in the school newspaper, went down to complain about it, and uh, the editor was there and said, why don't you come join, join the staff? And that was my uh, introduction to, to journalism. I got a uh, an internship between my junior and senior year at USA Today in Washington, D.C. Uh, on the sports page and uh, spent the summer there. And when that internship was over, I pretty much knew this is what I wanted to do, having spent the summer with, with, with a bunch of professional journalists and really enjoying it. And when I got back to do my senior year of college, the local paper hired me. They had offered me that summer internship, and I turned them down to go work at USA Today. And they said, when you get back, if uh, if, if you're still interested, uh, come see us. Maybe we'll have something for you. And so I went to see them at the beginning of my senior year in college, and they hired me. Uh, so I actually had a job at a newspaper when I graduated from college, my local paper uh, back home in Buffalo, New York, where I went to college. And um, and, and so I've, I've, I've pretty much, since leaving college, been doing journalism. Uh, mostly for uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, more than 20 years at the Wall Street Journal, and then um, now continuing as a columnist while working at the at the Manhattan Institute. You had asked about how I first got interested in Tom's work. That came in college, and I was on the paper at the time, an editor on the paper, and was having a conversation with some of my colleagues on the paper about affirmative action. And someone said to me, 
Jason, you sound like Thomas Sowell. And I said, Thomas who? And the person wrote down a, 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 the title of one of Sowell's books on a sheet of paper. And I went and uh, checked it out of the school library uh, that afternoon and read it that evening in, in one sitting. And went back the next day and checked out the rest of the college library's Thomas Sowell collection and uh, have been hooked hooked ever since. The first time I got to meet him was after I had joined the Wall Street Journal in uh, 1994. And uh, Sowell would come through New York on book tours um, and meet with editorial boards. And uh, as, as, as your audience knows, he writes a lot of books. So he came through pretty regularly. <laughs> and it was during one of those meetings in the mid-90s that I first got got to meet him in person. And then sometime in the mid-2000s, I went out to the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, where he's based, to do a long-form interview with him for the paper. And that's when we sort of struck up uh, an acquaintance that has uh, has endured ever since. What was he like in those editorial board meetings? I mean, did he come in really just to uh, promote his book? Did he defend his book? Did he just tell about it? Or what were those meetings like? Well, they were pretty friendly meetings. I think there's a lot of overlap between uh, the Wall Street Journal editorial page and uh, and Thomas Sowell's thinking on a number of issues. So it was a pretty friendly uh, conversation that we would have. And, and yes, he would talk about his latest book, why he wrote it. And then we would inevitably talk about uh, current events, what was going on in the news at the time. And, uh, and that's how it went. And the editorial board was these would be meetings of maybe uh, twelve to fifteen people, and uh, and so we would we would toss questions at him, and he would um, and he would fire away. He, he was just amazingly adept at that sort of thing. If if you um, you know, in researching the book, the interviews with him that I think I got the most out of were these old interviews that he would do on C-SPAN with Brian Lamb, and the reason uh, Brian Lamb. Uh, was such a good interviewer, at least when it came to Seoul, because is because he would keep his questions very short and then just let Tom talk. When you do that, you learn so much. Letting Thomas Seoul ramble is, is a real education. And, and that is what Lamb would do. And I found uh, in all the interviews I and I went through, you know, uh, scores of interviews, uh, uh, whether they were um, print interviews or audio interviews on the radio or television interviews, you name it. Uh, I think Brian Lambs were the most informative because of that. And, and I had gotten a taste of that from those editorial board meetings uh, many years ago. And what was your goal in writing Maverick? What, what did you hope to accomplish with the book? I wanted to introduce Soul's writing uh, and, and thinking to uh, a new generation. That was the primary goal. I, I was I was uh, annoyed, uh, almost angry, that when people thought of leading Black intellectuals in particular, you heard names like uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates and Ibram Kendi and Henry Louis Gates and Orlando Patterson and Cornell West, but not Thomas Sowell. And I thought that um, uh, you know, Tom had, had written circles around those individuals, maybe all of them put together. And it wasn't just the range of his writings, uh, or the volume, I should say, of his writings. It was also the depth and the rigor of his thinking that I didn't think 
uh, many of those individuals I just named came close, close to matching. He had anticipated uh, many of their arguments decades ago and refuted those arguments decades ago. In the case of some of those individuals before they were even born. <laughs> and so um, I, I, I thought that Tom deserved wider recognition outside of conservative and libertarian circles, where he is generally well-known. But I, I really thought he deserved a wider audience. It's funny that when, when I was working on the book, a film production company approached me about narrating a biography of Soul that they were putting together. And they'd heard about my book and asked me if I was interested in doing some of the interviews for the um, for the documentary and narrating it. And, and I said, sure. And again, with the goal of getting Tom's work more exposure. And what's been nice about that is after the film came out and was available for streaming on places like Amazon and YouTube, um, you could track uh, sort of the demographics of who, in fact, was streaming the film. And it trended younger. There were people in their 20s and 30s and 40s uh, they were the most likely people to be streaming the film. And I, and I was very happy about that because, again, that is the audience um, I was trying to reach. One of my favorite Thomas Sowell books is Intellectuals and in Society. In that book, Sowell talks a lot about journalists. And I get the sense that he has a somewhat strained relationship with that profession. <laughs> I mean, a journalist is a type of intellectual, someone who makes a living by selling their ideas. And he points out that very often, no matter how many times a particular journalist gets it wrong, they can continue on in their career without paying any price for being wrong, as long as other journalists and intellectuals continue to believe in them. As a journalist and also an avid student of Sowell, how do you process this criticism of your profession and do you take it to heart? I, I, I do try to take it to heart in terms of, of getting my facts straight, in terms of, you know, I'm an opinion journalist, so I, I'm not expected to be objective in my writings. People are paying me for, for my opinion, but I try and make them informed opinions. I think that is that is my job as a, uh, a, a columnist who writes about politics and culture and so forth. So I, I do try to uh, make sure I know what I'm talking about when I when I put pen to paper. And um, yes, in Sowell's definition of intellectuals that he's using in that book and that he's used elsewhere, he is including journalists. But he also has a, um, a separate and I think a more substantive critique of uh, intellectuals as the public generally understands them, which are uh, academics and, 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 and people with uh, uh, PhDs teaching in the universities and so forth. And um, he's very hard on them as well. And, 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 and that is based on his view that intellectuals have their own agenda. And we should understand that when we turn to them for policy advice uh, on what to do on how to handle society's problems and so forth, that we should not just assume that because they are intellectuals, they are playing it straight um, and that they they don't have an agenda. He says they have an agenda just like everyone else. And, and we should be mindful of that. And too often, he believes that um, journalists in particular are not. Uh, and, and, and that troubles him, troubles him as well, as, as it does uh, me. I'm just a regular guy. I'm not, not an intellectual. And I read articles and opinion pieces in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And they're so well written. They're so compelling, so convincing. 
I mean, these people are hired because of their outstanding articulation skills. They possess what Sowell might call verbal virtuosity. They're the best of the best. But what do I really know about these people? For all I know, their personal lives could be a mess. Maybe they can't sustain a happy marriage. Maybe their personal finances are in shambles. Maybe their kids hate them. Maybe they're on antidepressants and go to see a shrink twice a week. Also, what is their track record of getting it right? Is anyone keeping score on that? Like people track the stats of baseball players. I'm not trying to trash the profession of journalism. I'm just a student of Thomas Sowell, and I'm trying to understand and process Sowell's deep criticisms of intellectual professions like journalism. I'm trying to figure out who to listen to and why. Once you've read Intellectuals in Society, you can't unsee what he shows us. So many examples of brilliant intellectuals getting it completely wrong and leading their societies from one disaster to another. Jason, help us out here. You're in the profession. You know these people. You've peeked behind the curtain. You know how the sausage is made. Tell us the truth. We can handle it. Well, uh, I think Soul's advice on this front, and, 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 I, and I would share it, I think it's the correct advice, is to read widely and um, read uh, everything you can. Read uh, people and, 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 and columnists and, and editorial pages and listen to radio stations and, 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 and television commentators that you don't agree with, as well as the ones you agree with, and then make up your own mind. I remember being in a, in a, in a green room uh, before doing a television show some years ago, and I was sitting there um, with Donna Brazil, the uh, Democratic National Committee former head, who uh, who's now a TV commentator. And I've known Donna for a number of years, and we were just chatting. And she had she had recently uh, left Fox News and gone back to ABC. And I said to Donna, you know, in a better world, you know, more people like you would be on Fox, and more people like me who think like me would be on on ABC. You know, people shouldn't have to change the channel to hear a different opinion. Uh, but that's where we are today. And 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 she she readily agreed with that. The problem is not watching Fox News or watching CNN, it's only watching Fox News or only watching CNN. And that creates a situation where um, we're talking past one another, by and large, in a lot of our policy debates. And, and so, you know, out of, out of a sort of professional duty, I, uh, when I'm at home uh, with my wife or something at night, We'll flip through uh, the channels and and catch some of what's being said on MSNBC, what's being said on Fox, what's being said on on CNN. Um, I listen to NPR sometimes. I read the New York Times. I I want to hear what the other side is talking about. I want to hear the best case for their arguments being made, and I seek that out. Uh, now again, I do that because I'm a journalist. I'm an opinion journalist, and I and I, and I want my readers. Um, to know I'm not just tackling straw men when I when I am uh, uh, making a making a case for this or that that I've heard what the other side says and I'm taking on what I think are their best arguments. Uh, but as a, a a member of the general public who isn't a journalist, you, you know it's it's you have to force yourself to do that, particularly in this day and age of of social media where you can just set up your your Twitter feed or your Facebook feed or so on to just tell you what you want to hear. And 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 that's easy to do, and um, 
it's a trap that's easy to fall into, but uh, you have to resist it. And and Sol has, has said in the past, you know, read the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, but also read the editorial page of the New York Times. And then, you know, make up your own mind about, you know, who you think is is telling the truth. And, and that's something, again, that um, used to be a little easier to do than it is today. And that's just because of our news consumption habits and how they've changed. In a way, this subject makes me think about Sowell's book, uh, 1980 book, Knowledge and Decisions. In Maverick, you make the case that knowledge and decisions is one of Sowell's most important works. It not only marked a turning point in his career, but it's also a work of tremendous significance. I always say it's not the kind of book you read. It's more like the kind of book that you study. Please explain to us why that book is so important. Well, this was uh, a book that that Sol considers uh, one of his most important books, and also people Sol admires consider it one of his most important books. Milton Friedman was a big fan of of knowledge and decisions. Friedman was a mentor of Sol's at the University of Chicago, uh, where Sol earned his PhD in the early 1960s. And James Buchanan, the um, uh, University of Virginia economist, also a, a, a Nobel Prize winner, was also a big fan of knowledge and decision, sent to- Sol a letter saying, um, this is this is uh, the book I wish I'd written. And I've never said that to anyone about a book they've written. And um, Sol thinks it's a book that got him the job at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, where he's been since, since 1980. Um, that Milton Friedman, who was already there at the time, took that book and showed it to the leadership there and said, you should hire hire this guy, Saul. And he got the job. So it's a book that was a career changer for him. It was a foray into social theory for Saul, which is, uh, you know, Saul's, Saul's best known for his writings on racial controversies, but um, most of his books are not about race. And, um, you know, he's an economist by training focusing on the on the history of economic thought and the history of ideas. Uh, so Sowell's background is in writing about people like Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill and David Ricardo and, and the classical liberals, which I think he sees himself in that tradition, by the way. Uh, so this was uh, this decision making uh, was a book that was close to his heart. And it came out of a, a course that he was taught by Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago. All PhD students at the time had to take Milton Friedman's price theory course. And Sol took it. And in that course, he was assigned an essay uh, from an academic journal by uh, Friedrich Hayek. And uh, it was called The Use of Knowledge in Society, written back in the 1940s, I believe. And Sol produced knowledge and decisions uh, out of that essay that he read. And it's funny because Hayek later reviewed Knowledge and Decisions for Reason Magazine after it was released in 1980. And he praised Sol for taking Hayek's ideas and applying them in ways that, that Hayek said had never occurred to him. So it was quite the praise <laughs> that, um, that Sol received um, uh, from Friedrich Hayek himself, uh, having used Hayek's essay as, as a basis for the book. And and what and what it really is is uh, it's a book about the importance of the dissemination of knowledge in society and how policymakers need to take that in, 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 into account 
when they are setting policy. In other words, it's an attack on central planning. It's, it's an attack on the Soviet-style way of running an economy, uh, saying that no matter how smart the people in charge are, they are not smarter than the public collectively. And policymakers need to take into account how the public collectively has gathered knowledge and is using that knowledge when they go about their own decision-making. And, 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 and that book is a drawn-out explanation about why that is so important. And as I said, uh, not only does Saul think it's one of his most important books, but many of his admirers also think it's one of its most important books. Before I read your book, I also thought it was one of his most important books, even though it's somewhat difficult to read and you really have to study it. Um, one of my favorite quotes from that book is this. He says, a, a diamond is worth more than a penny, but enough pennies are worth more than any diamond. And that yeah. you know, has to do with the dissemination of consequential knowledge. It's widely distributed. You, you, you give a quote in your book about it's like an atom with the knowledge spinning around and far apart from each other, but it, it was a great quote. And he, oh, in, in a way, only soul can express something. Yeah, like, exactly. Right? I mean, it, 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 it probably is one of his more difficult books to read. There are some others I could, I could think of, but it is up there. And But the comparison should be not to soul's other books. It should be compared to trying to read Hayek. <laughs> right. And by that comparison... <laughs> Soul's book is a breeze. It's a page turner. <laughs> I was an intellectual history major in college, and I know what you're talking about. Some of those texts, like Immanuel Kant, are just so, so difficult. Um, yeah, and, and, that's, well. and that's part of, I think, Soul's appeal. Um, his ability to explain these things to people who don't uh, who don't have training or background in them. And, you know, he got a lot of that from uh, the idea of the importance of doing that um, from Milton Friedman, who after he won his PhD in the 1970s and left teaching, uh, would do a lot of lecturing on college campuses. He wrote a, a, a column for, for Newsweek for a while. And, and, and Friedman really thought it was very important for intellectuals to not just sit around talking to one another but to explain their discipline to non-intellectuals. And, and Tom has really taken that to heart. And I think he has, uh, to a large extent, modeled his, his career, his writing career, certainly his book writing career, on uh, not writing books uh, that only his fellow intellectuals can understand and grasp and make it through, but on writing books for the general public. And his ability to take complex subjects and uh, explain them to uh, everyday people is is remarkable. I remember I'm not an intellectual either. You know, I have a, a an English degree, and I remember getting into when I was trying to write the the chapters in the book about price theory and the importance of of, of the role of the, the the University of Chicago School of Economics and Soul's and Soul's career and thinking. I had to get into some details on on price theory and what that was about, and I set about trying to educate myself and and and, and do some interviews and talk to people, and um, it was quite difficult. It was quite difficult to to, to find something that had been written in plain English for a non-economist about price theory, and um, you know where I found a great explanation in basic economics. <laughs> 
by Thomas Sowell, <laughs> which is essentially yeah. an economics textbook uh, without any graphs, charts, and jargon. Now, Sowell wrote an economics textbook with graphs and charts and jargon, too. Uh, but basic economics is 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 one that does not have all of that. And it, 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 it too, is a quite remarkable achievement. He said that writing basic economics was, was a lot more difficult than writing the economics textbook uh, that he wrote uh, many years ago that includes all the graphs and, and, and charts and jargon. You mentioned two things that, that I want to talk about. One is that he did write for the general public and not for the cognoscenti. That's the word you use in your book for the intellectuals. And I, I get the sense that many public intellectuals, you know, look down on Sowell yeah. for this in a way. And I can't get out of my head this one moment from your discussion with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, where Glenn was saying that he didn't think Sowell would win a Nobel Prize because he spent most of his career writing for the general public, and he didn't really push the boundaries of the economics profession. And it's because he presented these deeply intellectual topics in a way that common people could understand is, in my opinion, the, the exact reason he should win it you know, the, the biggest prizes our society has to offer, you know, and many people do view Sowell as the best teacher they've ever had. You mentioned that yeah. in your book and also on, on the other podcast. What are your thoughts about this? I mean, there are, there seem to be millions of people who think of Thomas Sowell as the best teacher they ever had, even though they've never met him in person. Yes. And I think he takes, again, a, a lot of pride in that. That is what he set out to do. He did write a number of of books early in his career. Um, he wrote um, a book called Say's Law, which is about a, a, an economic concept uh, uh, that goes back hundreds of years. He wrote a book called uh, Classical uh, Economics Reconsidered. He wrote a book called Markets and Minorities. Uh, these were books written for uh, fellow economists, but he did not make a career writing those types of books. Uh, but when he wanted to to write for that audience, uh, he did so and uh, did so quite well. Uh, he, those books were um, uh, won a lot of praise by his peers in academic journals where they were reviewed. But you know, part of this is gets into Sowell's background and why he became an economist. Sowell says that he became an economist because he wanted to understand the world around him. And once he got some understanding of that, he wanted to share it with others. Sol wanted to teach. He's always wanted to teach. His first love was teaching, and not at some uh, big uh, uh, research university, but uh, preferably at a small school where you could really get to know the students. And he started out as uh, an, an academic in the 1960s and taught um, uh, for close to two decades on and off. Um, uh, for various reasons that we could get into if you if you want, uh, it didn't take. Um, uh, he had run in after run in with college administrators and faculty and so forth, and he eventually left teaching. But he has continued to teach through those books that he has written for the general audience. That I think uh, will be will be his legacy. In terms of the Nobel Prize, uh, you know, my thinking has been, I'd, I'd make two points. One is the winners of the Nobel Prize in, 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 in economics, not exclusively, but largely tend to be academic economists writing about more technical fare 
than Sol has has written about throughout his career. Uh, and that could be one reason I think he hasn't hasn't been uh, considered for the Nobel Prize. The other reason, however, I think is that Sol has not just when it comes to the Nobel Prize, but when it comes to academic prizes of all kinds, he, he is not someone who has aspired to uh, win favor with the type of people who make decisions about who wins those awards. He is not someone who pulls his punches in his writings, as as we started out by discussing. He's written a ton about intellectuals and intellectual history. And if you are a fellow intellectual, you may not come off very well <laughs> in, in those writings. And so he hasn't won himself very many friends uh, among the groups of people who decide on who gets these awards we're discussing. And that may also have something to do with why he, he hasn't won more of them. Most people have never heard of Thomas Sowell from, from my experience when I ask people. And of the people who have heard of him, many frame him as a Black conservative. Half of those people think that's a feature. The other half think that's a bug. Sowell is known for his many writings about race and ethnicity, but that's only the tip of the iceberg of his scholarship, as you mentioned. And if he had never said a single word on those subjects, I would still have a podcast called The Genius of Thomas Sowell. And I, you know, you make, you make the case in Maverick that he, he got into the race business sort of reluctantly. It wasn't his main interest. It wasn't his focus. Tell us more about that. Well, um, Again, his PhD is is in economics and specifically in the history of economic thought. And and, and his real forte is the study of uh, classical liberal economists like Adam Smith and David Ricardo and and, and folks like that and and, and Marx. And and that is what he set out to teach in in, in college after school. The reason he decided to, to get into writing about race he says, is out of a sense of duty. Things were uh, you know, not being said that needed to be said out loud, and too few people were willing to say them out loud. And this is um, something that came to fore in the late 60s and early 70s, where he saw the uh, direction of the civil rights movement, something he had supported, taking uh, some disastrous turns in his view. And he wanted to explain why that was. And um, looking back, Thomas Sowell turned out to be right about a lot of that criticism, even though he took a lot of heat at the time for that. And it's one of the reasons uh, I think more people and more Black people in particular uh, have not heard about Thomas Sowell. Um, to use uh, the term of the day, uh, he was sort of canceled uh, back then. The Black leadership, political leadership, uh, intellectual leadership convinced the media people in my profession, uh, to not turn to Thomas Sowell for an opinion on, on issues of the day concerning race. And, and so um, he was canceled. He, he was someone who was sidelined, marginalized. And, uh, you know, he's paid a price for sticking to his guns on, on these issues, notwithstanding how he's been treated by many people in his profession and elsewhere. Um, but I, you know, I admire that. Uh, I think his voice has been an important one, mainly because it's been correct in, in many of his 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 predictions about uh, the direction of the civil rights movement in particular and black leadership in particular have proven have proven true. And um, but he has certainly paid paid a price. They will 
they will never forgive him for being right. Let's switch gears and talk about Sowell's new book, Social Justice Fallacies. Sowell used the word fallacies in the title of one other book, Economic Facts and Fallacies, back in 2008, which was coincidentally my first Sowell book. That book was paradigm shifting for me because it introduced me to a totally new way of looking at things like minimum wage laws and rent control. What do you think Sowell means by the title Social Justice Fallacies? And where do you see this new book in the context of his larger body of work? This gets back to uh, Sowell's writings on intellectual history and, uh, and social theory. Sowell considers his favorite book, one titled Conflict of Visions. And A Conflict of Visions is part of uh, an informal trilogy on social theory that Sowell wrote. After A Conflict of Visions, he wrote a book called The Vision of the Anointed. Then the third one is a book called uh, The Quest for Cosmic Justice. And these three books were written over, I think, a 12, 14-year span. Social justice theories falls in line with those books. It's a kind of a summary of those books uh, with some updates on more recent happenings. I believe the um, Quest for Cosmic Justice, the last book in that informal trilogy, came out in the late 90s. So I think it's been uh, a little while. And, I, and, and, and Sol returns in social justice fallacies to a lot of the themes that he first laid out in, in those books. And what Tom is getting at, and it's really, um, I think, uh, uh, something of a summary of his worldview, is that the social justice crowd begins with a very faulty assumption about how the world works. And that assumption is that the inequality we see today, whether it's income inequality or racial inequality or so forth, is aberrant that it is not normal, that wherever we see racially disparate outcomes, something nefarious must be going on. They start with that assumption. And Sowell says that is deeply, deeply misguided, that racial parity in outcomes, parity in, all, in any kind of outcome, whether they were talking about racial groups, ethnic groups, genders, na nations, you name it, they're not normal. They are, they, they are utopian. They are not to be found in any society down through history. So we're holding up as a norm something that has never been found in history, which is parity in outcomes of various endeavors, whether it's uh, incomes, educational attainment, um, home ownership rates, uh, you know, going into certain professions and so forth. We expect to see parity. Where we don't see it, we assume something's wrong. Sol says, no, you have it exactly backwards. Disparate outcomes are the norm. And, and, and this idea that we would have parity in outcomes is utopian. And his problem with this utopian view is that if you start there with saying something nefarious must be going on here because we don't have uh, proportionate outcomes, it can take you in many, many bad directions. You can be barking up the wrong tree till kingdom come. And, and, and that is essentially his, his central critique of the social justice vision, that, that they, are, they, they, are, they, are, they are starting with an assumption that is way, way off base. 
You know, I have to admit that the, the new book isn't what I was expecting. From the title, I was thinking it was going to be a very timely book about BLM, DEI, George Floyd, gender activism, climate activism. I was expecting a book more like the housing boom and bust, which was, you know, a very timely book about a, a very narrow subject, but it's not that at all. The book is only 130 pages, but don't let that fool you. It's ultra concentrated. You know, it reminds me of that cold brew coffee that I buy at Trader Joe's. You know, it's super concentrated. One quart can make two gallons of coffee just by adding water. And I think that's this book. In fact, the second time that I read it, I was finding like every paragraph was quote worthy. He just has really whittled this book down to yeah. like every paragraph really pulling a lot of weight. Yeah, it's a book that that really does punch above its weight uh, in that sense. It reminded me of the first book I read by him uh, called Civil Rights, Rhetoric, and Reality, written back in 1984. Markets and Minorities is another one. Very tight arguments. He, he's, he doesn't do a lot of, 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 of name dropping, so to speak. And it, 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 it is really written with the understanding that there are currently people who are famous who are making these arguments, but they're just the latest people to be making the arguments. That these arguments are old, old arguments. The 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 the, the conflict of visions book that Souls uh, says is his favorite is also about social justice, and the conflicting visions that he's getting at are the constrained view and the unconstrained view. And what he's really talking about is human nature. People with a constrained view of human nature look at something like war or, or, or poverty and say, we can solve these problems. We can eliminate them. Uh, racism, we can eliminate. If you, uh, if you have an, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I, 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 I want to back up here. People with um, the unconstrained view are the ones who say that we can eliminate these problems, not just manage them, but eliminate them altogether. People with a more constrained view say that these are problems that have always been with us, probably always will be with us. So the priority should be on building institutions, putting in place processes that help us best deal with problems we're probably never going to solve entirely. And Sol says that depending on which view you take, this view that, that we can eliminate age-old problems versus a view that we have to learn to live with these problems and manage them to the best of our ability. Depending on which view you take, it can explain how you're going to think about everything from defense spending to rent control to affirmative action to taxes to judicial activism, uh, you name it. And, and Sol, in that book, A Conflict of Visions, traces the history of these two Two, two strands of thinking back more than 200 years to authors like the British journalist William Godwin, down through Rousseau, John Rawls, uh, the social justice theorist from uh, the middle part of the 20th century. And, and his, his point is that these ideas are being voiced by a new generation, but they're very, very old ideas. And I think that's why he didn't feel the need to name the current people expressing them. He wasn't trying to score points by taking jabs at them, by naming them. He's trying to get at their underlying assumptions about their way of thinking and, and, and why he believes 
it's off base. And I think he, again, as you said, is very effective at doing that in, in a book that isn't that long. The fallacy you referred to before, Sowell calls the equal chances fallacy. And one, one example he gives in American sports, for example, blacks are overrepresented in professional basketball, whites are overrepresented in professional tennis, and Hispanics are overrepresented in major league baseball. And that it's a fallacy to think that groups are going to be equally represented in all a- aspects of life. That was what, what you referred to before. The second category of fallacy that he teases out in the book, he calls racial fallacies. Now, this I found to be a somewhat complicated chapter. And he seems to be saying this, correct me if I'm wrong. In the early 20th century, the dominant view was that the differences between races could best be explained by genetic differences, that some races were superior and some were inferior, and that this was the basis for the eugenics movement, which sought to weed out inferior individuals and groups in order to create a more perfect society. And he contrasts that position with the dominant view now over 100 years later, which is that all differences between groups can be explained by the existence of racism and discrimination. And Sowell then spends that part of the book debunking both of these positions. Ironically, both of these views were held by people who call themselves progressives. Yeah. And help us, you, help you, us you, to understand you got that. You got that exactly right. And, and, and the, the fallacy there is that um, the progressives have taken one factor and decided that it is the factor. And so a hundred years ago, the one factor was genetics and nothing else mattered. Today, the one factor is racism or discrimination and nothing else matters. And, and, and Sol says, what's wrong is their reliance on a single factor as being causal. And, 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 and they were wrong a hundred years ago about genetics, and they're wrong today about racism. And the, the racism argument, you know, racism as this sort of blanket explanation for disparate outcomes uh, is, is an argument that, that Sol has taken on time and time again. And one of the central fallacies to this argument is the progress that Blacks were making in a previous era when all reasonable people would agree there was far more racism. A hundred years ago, black marriage rates were higher than white marriage rates in this country. How are you going to blame the breakdown of the family today on racism or Jim Crow or slavery? A hundred years ago, they were in the middle of Jim Crow. A hundred years ago, that generation was much closer to the institution of slavery. And yet, Black marriage rates were far, far higher than they are today. So someone who wants to go, oh, the Black family breakdown is a product of uh, the legacy of Jim Crow, the legacy of slavery, has to explain why this legacy skipped a few generations and then reasserted itself. One of the other examples he gives there um, to go after the systemic racism argument, it was a stat that really jumped out at me, was he notes that in the 2020 census, some figures that caught his attention. So white median outcomes, uh, white median uh, incomes, I should say, white median incomes are higher than black median incomes and have been for a long time in this country. But there are more than 9 million black people that make more than the white median. 
how has systemic racism missed 9 million Black people? And he says, you take a figure like that, and it goes a long way towards undermining this whole notion that the system is racist. He's, 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 he likes another statistic that he's used a number of times, including in social justice fallacies, about poverty rates in America and the extent to which we can blame the Black poverty rate on racism. Because among married Black people, poverty has been in the single digits since the mid-90s for 30 years. So is poverty rate a function of racism or a function of attitudes towards marriage? Because uh, I don't know any racists that are going around saying, oh, Jason, you're married, so we're going to skip over you. So again, that gets to when you start with this assumption that all disparate outcomes can be blamed on racism, uh, you run into all kinds of of problems. And Solis pointed this out time and again. He's not arguing that racism doesn't exist. He's not arguing that racism can't have uh, a negative impact on Black upward mobility. He's just arguing that based on his research and experience and based on his reading of the data, uh, other factors, factors other than racial prejudice, are playing a far larger role in our disparate outcomes today than racism. And all of our focus is on racism. Another class of fallacy that Sowell talks about in the new book, he calls the chess pieces fallacy. This is the idea that society and the people in it can be, quote unquote, arranged by the government like chess pieces on a chessboard. Specifically, it's the idea that wealth can be redistributed in a way that is more pleasing to the eye without causing all sorts of new problems. Let me quote Sowell. He says, quote, the confiscation and redistribution of wealth, whether on a moderate or a comprehensive scale, is at the heart of the social justice agenda. While social justice advocates stress what they see as the desirability of such policies, the feasibility of those policies tends to receive far less attention, and the consequences of trying and failing often receive virtually no attention, end quote. So you work with the Wall Street Journal. You must know, what is this whole wealth distribution thing? And what is Sowell telling us here? Well, what, he, what he's saying is that efforts to redistribute wealth have, have often led to instead the redistribution of, 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 of poverty. <laughs> and, um, um, and, and that's the problem. In, in, in other words, we've tried wealth redistribution schemes time and again. That's what the Great Society was all about in the 1960s. If if we could solve poverty simply by sending people checks in the mail, we would have solved it a long time ago. But what people need to, 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 to escape poverty is to become more productive. And, and there's been far less focus on making people more productive than there's been on making them comfortable in their poverty. And, 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 and that is soul's Soul's take. And, and again, his critique of the social justice folks is that they, they acknowledge that there are no trade-offs in what they are trying to do. They, they, they refuse to acknowledge 
the trade-offs. So yes, you can you can you can lift the minimum wage. And if you are someone making the minimum wage, you will be better off when the minimum wage goes up. Provided A, you keep your job because your employer has not decided you're too expensive to employ anymore. And you keep the same number of hours you were working at that job after the minimum wage goes up. But another trade-off here is all the people who will never be hired in the first place now because they have become too expensive to hire because of the minimum wage hike. Those are the trade-offs that Sol says we need to keep in mind and that the social justice advocates uh, ignore. And the wealth redistribution argument there, if you look at the welfare state and what's happened there, is as you've made welfare more attractive, the lesson there is you get more people on welfare. Welfare doesn't reduce poverty. It simply increases dependency. You're not helping the folks you're trying to help when you make them more and more comfortable on welfare. In fact, if the people on welfare are behaving very rationally, if the government benefits they're receiving are more than they could ever make it a job, why would they go and look for a job? And it's another case where the social justice advocates don't take into account the perverse incentives they can be putting in place when they advocate for larger welfare states uh, and other government programs. And, and Sol says this, these are things we have to keep in mind. So we're coming to the end of our time, and I just want to ask you one more question. One question I often get is, Alan, I haven't read any Thomas Sowell books yet. I've just seen a bunch of his videos on YouTube. That's a very common one. Which book do you recommend that I start with? Would you recommend Social Justice Fallacies as someone's first book, or would you recommend another one? I think I would recommend a, a book called uh, The Thomas Sowell Reader, which was published, I believe, around 2012, 2013. And I would recommend that book because it is a sampling of his writings. There are some a bunch of newspaper columns in there that are reprinted. There are some book chapters uh, from various books that he's written that are, are printed there. And it's a nice sampling of his thinking on a wide range of issues. And if something in that book grabs you, then you can go and find a book-length treatment of that subject. Uh, among his other works. But I think that is a very good introduction to Thomas Sowell and and where he's coming from on on any number of issues. Jason Riley, thank you for joining me on the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Thank you for having me. Forget your trouble, happy day. Come on, get happy. I hear again a chance. All the above are clear. So let's sing a song. Come on, get happy. Cheer again. Get happy days are here again. If you like this podcast and want to support the work we are doing, introducing more and more people to the ideas of Thomas Sowell, there are many ways you can help. Rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends about Sowell and the podcast. Support us on Patreon. Purchase our Thomas Sowell post-it notepads. Follow me on Twitter for daily Sowell quotes and to connect with other fans of You Know Who. For now, just sit back and enjoy this duet of Happy Days Are Here Again, featuring the 21-year-old Barbara Streisand and Judy Garland 
from 1963. This has been episode 34 of the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. I'm Alan Woolen. Thanks for listening. Just get happy. I hear you better change the sky.